Good evening and welcome to our Wednesday evening Bible study at the Traverse City Church of Christ. This is for the March 3rd class. We'll be in the book of Revelation chapter 11. If you'd like to have your Bibles turned there and ready when we begin in just a few moments. But before we do, let's go to God in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for another time and episode that we have to look into your word. And as we read your word, Father, may we be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. May we take in those things which you have written for us. May they be a warning for the times that we live in and for the life that we live. And always be prepared for the end whenever it may come. We thank you for this opportunity. May we use it more and more as we see the day coming. We pray for our country that it may seek wisdom from you and a path to go. That they may do righteousness and justice and not only our land but lands around the world, and for the explicit purpose that your gospel may go out to free and hearing people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We are in Revelation chapter 11, but before we do, as we have done in the past classes, we'll look at a brief review of chapters 1 through 10. Chapter 1 gives us the basis of what John was told. It is the revelation. This is one revelation. It is not plural revelations of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. So we come down to the end of verse 3, for the time is near. And so that sets us that, that this is something that is going to take place soon in the days of John. The time is near. As he comes down, he tells him in verse 19, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, the things that uh, I've showed you just prior to this, the things that are, and the things that are take place after this. Chapters 2 and 3 are the individual letters written to the seven churches. And those are seven real churches. They are not something symbolic of a time to come, but they are real churches. Uh, the words of Christ, the one who knows, the all-seeing eyes, he knows all things that they are doing. He knows the trials that they're going through. He knows the trials that you and I are enduring today. He has something against several of those congregations. And he commands them that they must repent. And the promise that those who conquer or overcome, he gives them promises. And he tells them, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Chapter 4 is... Uh, John sees a door open in heaven and he sees this wonderful and magnificent uh, vision that is held open to him. As I said before, it's not unlike the scenes experienced by Moses uh, on Mount Sinai or Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Ezekiel sees many things like this. Daniel as well. And Paul, we believe, saw things such as this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It shows the magnificence of the Father. Uh, Jesus said in John chapter 14, Believe in God. Chapter 5 says, Believe also in me. Worthy is the Lamb. And the Lamb is about to open. He's the only one that is worthy to open these, this scroll that has seven seals. The seven seals are really the future. Only God knows the future. Chapter 6, the seals begin to be opened. God shows, the first horse that comes out shows that it is uh, Christ. He is going to be victorious. So above all this, don't worry. Christ is victorious. Then he begins to show in the, the three subsequent horses that come out, his judgments. And his judgments are the same judgments that we read over and over in the Old Testament. He will use the sword, famine, pestilence, and even wild animals are at his disposal in his judgments. 
uh, going to show him that things are about to begin. But those who are slain for their faith, that we read, they are comforted. And they ask the question, how long, how long? And in, we find that the judgment is declared and the question is asked, the very last words of chapter 6 says, who can stand? Who can stand in God's judgment? Not the first time that has been asked. It has been asked over and over in the Old Testament. Who can stand in God's judgment? Chapter 7 answers that question. Who can stand? It's seen from two perspectives. The Israel of God, the 144,000. Lest we think that this is the real Israel, take a look at everyone that's on the list. Who is there? Who is missing? Why is Joseph there, but not Manasseh? Why, uh, why is there a tribe missing? So it is not the Israel of the Old Testament. It's the Israel of God of the New Testament. Why are those missing and some included? We aren't given that privilege. Now the multitude that has no number, uh, seen from the other standpoint, those who have made it through, uh, that the multitude has no number. That's the number that was given to Abraham. If you can count the stars, then you'll know how many your descendants are going to be. That was one of the three promises that was made to Abraham, that from your seed, all nations will be blessed. All nations are blessed through Christ. Chapter 8, we have the uh, seventh seal, and the first four trumpets are given in Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 9, the fifth and sixth trumpets are sounded. The star that's fallen from heaven and the locusts from the bottomless pit are released. This is not the last time we're going to hear of the bottomless pit. The first woe is completed, we are told, and the four angels from the four corners are released. Remember, they had been held back for a while, but now they are released. We come to Revelation chapter 10, the seven thunders sound. John takes the little scroll and eats it. Chapter 11, we come, we have the measuring reed, the two witnesses, the beast, and the seventh trumpet is sounded. Uh, so that is what is, uh, is about to transpire in Revelation chapter 11. And Revelation, uh, generally speaking, is divided into two parts. The first 11 chapters and then the last 11 chapters. It's really divided in two. When we get to the end of chapter 11, we're going to find that the scenes begin to start all over again, but in a different sense. So... When we come to the end of chapter 11, we're beginning the end of the first part of the book of Revelation. But first, a little historical perspective. And the historical perspective we get from reading Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 through 45. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream and he doesn't understand it. He brings his uh, soothsayers, his astrologers, he brings his Babylonians in, but no one can understand it. Daniel comes and, and tells him that this is something that only God knows. And so as he comes down to the, to the end, he says, In the days of those kings, he has already revealed what those first four are. And we're going to look at those in just a few minutes. But right now, he says, In the days of those kings, the fourth kingdom, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever." just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. What did Nebuchadnezzar see in his dream? It is pertinent in the interpretations of the book of Revelation. And I talk about interpretation because there are many that are there. As we see on the left-hand side, 
the proposition that the kingdom is here. On the right side, the kingdom is yet to come. They're similar. The Babylon at the top, then the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and then the bottom is the Roman Empire with, at the bottom right, you'll see the modern age, the new Roman Empire, uh, the European Union, New World Order with question marks there. Okay, Depending on which one you believe, if the kingdom is here or the kingdom is yet to come, has a lot to do with how your interpretation of the book of Revelation is. Has the kingdom come? Well, what does the Bible say? Now, I, I could give you, I could say yes or no. It wouldn't matter my opinion. What does the Bible say? More important, what did Jesus say? In Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 through 19, and many may be very familiar with this, but there may be some who don't understand uh, what is being talked about in the kingdom. But it is pertinent to our study. And until we can understand this, we really can't go much further in the book of Revelation. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 through 19, Jesus is asked the question just prior to this. Uh, well, actually, he says it right here. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? He is asked the question, who do people say that I am? And they give him replies, such as John the Baptist or one of the prophets. But he said, who do you say that I am? In verse 16, Simon replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will, and I've underlined those. They're not underlined in the authorized version, but I've underlined that so that you can see there is something in the future tense here. I will. The church of the kingdom do not exist at this time in what we're looking at. Uh, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I will build. I will give the keys. The church and the kingdom are still in the future. And I want to make, the, the, at the bottom where it says, note, John the Baptist did not build the church. Now there are some out here who believe that John the Baptist established the church. He did not. At this point, John the Baptist is already dead. We go back two chapters to Matthew chapter 14 and verse 2, and uh, Herod is saying, I killed him. I've already killed him. Who is this Jesus that's preaching? Okay. The purpose of John the Baptist was to prepare the way for the Messiah. He did not establish a church. Notice it is still in the future. Mark chapter 9 and verse 1, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come to power. So we see that in Matthew chapter 16 and Mark chapter 9 verse 1 that the kingdom is not yet come. But he says there are some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom. That implies that there are some who are there. The kingdom has not yet been established, but it will come in the lifetime of some of them there. What's the conclusion we can have? Either some of the apostles are still alive, or the kingdom has already been established. And that may be a surprise to some, but let's let the scriptures teach. In Colossians chapter 1, and verses 13 through 14, Paul writing to the church at Colossae, he has, and this you can check this out, not just because it's in English, but in the Greek, this is past tense. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Note, 
Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians during his imprisonment in Rome. Uh, we, he, he tells, reminds them to remember my chains in the last verse of the chapter, the book, pardon me. So around A.D. 61 to 62 could go one year either way. But that's generally speaking. Paul writes that we, or those in Colossian and he, have been delivered into the kingdom. It's past tense. Conclusion, sometime between Mark chapter 9 and the Colossians letter, the kingdom was established. That is a foregone conclusion. You cannot argue with this. Paul says that we have been transferred into it. He's not writing to 2,000 years in the future. He's writing at 61 AD approximately. <coughs> in Acts chapter 1 and verses 7 through 8, Jesus is speaking to his disciples just before he is about to ascend into heaven. The disciples have asked him, is it at this time that you're going to establish the kingdom again? He says to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. When did they receive that power? Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Okay? So we see that the, uh, the kingdom came, coming with power came on the day of Pentecost. And now Peter is given the, uh, the keys of the kingdom. Peter stands up with the eleven, lifted his voice, and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my word. So he begins to preach. Jesus said he would give Peter the keys of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19. What were the keys? What are keys? Keys are something that opens and allows entrance. The gospel is the key. It is, Paul says, it is the power to save to all who believe. He would build his church on what? On the belief that Jesus was the Christ. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. When was the kingdom established? Well, when did the power come? On the day of Pentecost, the kingdom was established. When was the church established? On the day of Pentecost. The church and the kingdom are one and the same. Now, there is an eternal kingdom that is yet to come, but we realize that the church and the kingdom are the same thing. All right? We've got that far. So, why is that important? Why is that important to know that the kingdom has already come? Well, Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44 says, And in the days of those kings, he's talking about that fourth kingdom, the kingdom of Rome. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So we know that in the days of those kings, what kings? The days of the kings of Rome. Okay? He's talking about that. There we go. The kingdom is set up in those days. How do we know this? Okay? We look down at the bottom right. It can't be that modern age, new Roman Empire. It can't be that we're still waiting for the kingdom to be set up in those days. It's already been set up. Why is this important to know? The book of Revelation is revealing what God showed to Nebuchadnezzar in his dream. Daniel the prophet interprets the dream for him. 
Remember Amos 3, 7, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing His secret to His servants, the prophets. That's why God revealed this to Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel interpreted it for him and revealed it, what it is. Now we come to Daniel chapter 7, and verse 1 through 8. And it may seem like we're taking a, a long time to get to this point, but you'll appreciate when we get there. Daniel is having another vision. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, and he was uh, in line after Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And I'll stop there. Can you remember hearing this same thing that happens in the book of Revelation? We have the four winds that are being held back. The four beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. I have a little note at the bottom with referring to Babylon. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in his mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. We're going to read about ten horns in the book of Revelation. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up from among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. So we have the second one. You've got the color coordination. The Medo-Persian is the yellow, the Greek is the blue, and the Rome has the, uh, the ten horns, or the fourth beast, in this. Okay? What is Daniel seeing? Daniel is seeing the same thing that he saw in Nebuchadnezzar's dream that he interpreted for him. Babylon, if you know your history, Babylon is represented by the lion. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, those symbols are still uh, seen today on uh, the ancient walls. The Medo-Persian was like a bear lifted up on one side. One or other, two kingdoms that came together, the Medo-Persian. One was stronger than the other. And even though it had flesh in its mouth, those three ribs, it was told consume even more. Its uh, empire was expanded greatly. Greece was like a leopard with wings. If you know your history, you know that Alexander the Great conquered more land in less time than perhaps any other ruler in the history of the world. And in fact, it has been said, whether it's true or not, that when he was near the end of his days, he looked out over his empire that he had conquered and wept because there were no more lands to conquer. But he conquered with the swiftness of a leopard, the fastest land animal on earth. The fourth one was this beast. Now, this looks like a dinosaur to me, but whatever the beast looked like, he said it was terrifying. And so this is the, the beast of Rome. So he is seeing uh, just another vision of what was seen in chapter 2. So we continue on with Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire, and a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him, and the court sat in judgment, and the books were open. 
Sounds a lot like Revelation chapter 4. I looked then because the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one that shall not be destroyed. He, of course, is talking about this one that came to him. He's talking about Christ that he sees in the vision. And we continue on in verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. He's just saying again what has been said in chapter 2 and what he's read in that vision. It's being interpreted for him. So he, this is what he has seen. He's seen those four visions. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast. The fourth beast is the Roman Empire, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broken pieces and stamped that what, uh, what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. And the horn had eyes and a mouth and spoke great things that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. Uh, which is very true of the, the Roman Empire. As for, let's see, yes, that's where we're at. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and he shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, and be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and dominion and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. It's a lot of reading uh, to go through here, but Daniel chapter 7 is really what we have been reading about in the book of Revelation. It's a fulfillment. Daniel chapter 2 uh, Revelation is a fulfillment when the kingdom would be established. Daniel chapter 2 and 7 are describing what we are about to read in Revelation chapter 11. It is the key to understanding the time frame by identifying the beast. Daniel is looking forward into the future in Daniel chapter 7. He sees a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a beast. Now we come down to uh, Revelation chapter 13. John is looking back on the time of Revelation. What does he see? He sees a beast coming out of the water. He sees a leopard, uh, parts of a leopard, parts of a bear, and parts of a lion. He's looking back. Daniel's looking to the future. John, looking back, sees them in reverse order. 
Revelation 13, 1 and 2. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. This beast rising out of the sea is the Roman Empire with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet like a bear's, its mouth like a lion's mouth, and to it the dragon gave his power. We've read about the dragon last week, the dragon that came out of the bottomless pit. Who's the dragon? We're going to read about the dragon. Uh, it is Satan. And to the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So the beast is now identified. We're going to meet the beast in chapter 11 for the first time. It is a mighty and a great kingdom. So that sets the stage. I don't have to go out of my way to try to figure out who the beast is. The Bible has interpreted and told us. John's looking back at exactly what Daniel saw going forward. The beast coming out, it had consumed the leopard, the bear, and the lion. It had consumed the Greeks, it had, who in turn had consumed the Medo-Persians, who in turn had uh, overcome and conquered the uh, Babylon. So, we come now to Revelation chapter 11. The measuring reed, the two witnesses, the beast, and the seventh trumpet is sounded. And we come down, what is the theme of chapter 11? Chapter 11, we go back to uh, chapter 10 and verse 11, and I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Chapter 11 is just a pause before the seventh trumpet. Just as there was a pause before the seventh seal, it will show the saints once again the divine protection, even though the church is going to appear to be defeated. So, verse 1 of chapter 11. Then I was given a reed, like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. And I have a little note here that the Greek word for this word temple is naos, and it refers to the inner sanctuary specifically. Every reference to the temple in Revelation is this Greek word. Christians are the naos of God. Go to your Greek dictionary and look this up. We are the inner temple of God, where God dwells. Hieron refers to the entirety of the temple complex. In Acts chapter 2.46, when it says that the, uh, the church met regularly in the temple, they weren't meeting in the inner sanctuary. They were meeting in the temple complex. So, interesting to note this. He's measuring the inner temple of God. Who is given the reed? And why? What is the temple? What does it mean to measure him? The Apostle John is measuring the church. Why John? Well, John is measuring the church in the time he is living, not 2,000 years into the future. John's measuring accomplishes what the angel in 7.3 does. Remember, it seals and it marks or sets apart. But he's identifying that they are being protected. But it also shows that the church will undergo persecution and death by that which is not measured, which is outside in the, uh, uh, the Gentile court. We've seen this, this measuring process before. In Ezekiel chapter 40 and verse 3, Ezekiel is uh, the last, I believe it's the last eight chapters that Ezekiel goes out and measures uh, great areas. He says, When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze, with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway. This is the man that's going to do the measuring, not Ezekiel. But in Zechariah chapter 2 and verses 1 through 2, which a lot of the, um, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? A lot of the uh, 
symbolism comes from the book of Zechariah in these first couple of verses. Zechariah chapter 2 and verse 1 and 2, I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what its width and what is its length. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about measuring. What does measuring accomplish? Now, as a carpenter, when I measure something, I'm measuring what I'm going to cut off. I'm measuring what I'm going to keep. That's the, really the essence of, uh, of what measuring is. Now, you may measure to know how big something is, and I, I understand that. But the purpose of measuring uh, here in the book of Revelation is that uh, God is showing those whom He is going to protect. He's measuring those things. So in verse 2, But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. What is this holy city they're talking about? They're talking... Well, we'll read about it here in a moment, so we'll look at it. So Daniel chapter, we look at the last two words I want to look, underfoot for 42 months. And there's some terms we want to look at here for the 42 months. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, which is talking about Revelation chapter 11, He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints. What does it mean to wear out the saints? Well, he's going to persecute them of the Most High and shall think to change times in the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. A time is... Uh, is one measurement, a time is two of those measurements, and then a half a time. So a time plus two times is three and a half a time. So three and a half, whatever three and a half equals. Uh, in the book of Daniel, when Nebuchadnezzar ate grass for seven periods of time, they're talking about seven years. Now, this isn't necessarily talking about three and a half years, but it's talking about something uh, we'll look at. 42 months is a time times and half a times, and three and a half months, 1260 days, all refer to the same measurement of time. Why are they used different? Well, I'm not sure I really have the answer to that. Uh, but what it is, is they are measurements, seven being the fullness or perfection, three and a half is incomplete, partial, short, or for a designated time. If it were going to be something that was never-ending, the, the number seven would have been used. But so something that is of a shorter duration, three and a half. Um, the state of affairs during which the people of God and people are hurt, suffer, or persecuted. I have a couple of references there that we'll see in a moment. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 6. A woman fled into the wilderness where she was, uh, has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. This 1260 days is the same, is equivalent to three and a half months. Uh, uh, three and a half months. Uh, I'm sorry, three and a half years. So it's three and a half, I'm sorry. Uh, 1214, I had to do my math there, my gazintas. But the woman in Revelation 1214 says, But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. Again, in this case, we see that it is equal the same time uh, to 1260 days. Revelation 13:5, And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. All of these, uh, used within the context of that vision, are talking about the same amount of time, just seen from different uh, from angles. They would not be completely given over, only for a short time. A time, times, and half a time. Three and a half. Uh, in this prophecy, it's three and a half months that we look at. If a doctor told you the pain you were having would go away eventually, he would say that it is temporary. If a doctor told you that the pain would never go away, that it is fatal, he would not tell you it's temporary. He would tell you that it's fatal. Okay? Uh, this persecution that they are undergoing is not 
permanent, nor is it fatal. That is to completely kill the church. It is temporary and for a time. And as we're going to see that even though it appears that they're dead, they are going to rise from it. Verse 3, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Notice it's 1,260 days, equivalent to what we're going to find in chapters to follow here. So you ask yourself, why two witnesses? Who gave them power? Why are they prophesying? And why 1,260 days? And what does it mean to be clothed in sackcloth? So we're seeing this this vision, what does this mean? You look at the overall, we'll look at the, I've used the word before, the gestalt. The whole is worth more than the sum of its parts. Well, let's let the Bible speak. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, in the old law, it says, On the evidence of two witnesses, or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Paul repeats this, in 2 Corinthians 13.1 in the church era. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. You must have at least two to establish something. Truth is established by two witnesses. In John chapter 5, verse 31 through 33, Jesus said, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. So John and Jesus bear the testimony about the truth. So there's, we have those two. Uh, Luke chapter 10 and verse 1, After this the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was to go about. Uh, in Acts chapter 13, 2, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called. So we see that the disciples were often sent out two by two. In Exodus chapter 7, verse 1 and 2, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like a God, like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. He shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his hand. So we see Moses and Aaron going two by two. Uh, in Luke chapter 24 and 27, we find, And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What two things witness the coming Messiah? The law and the prophets. Uh, later in the chapter, he'd say the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. But the Psalms were prophecies. David was a prophet. Peter says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 30 that David was a prophet. So, uh, so we have those two things that established uh, the coming Messiah, the law and the prophets. Acts chapter uh, 1 verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The uh, John chapter 8, and I know it seems that we're going, but, it, but it's important to understand this concept of who the two witnesses or what the two witnesses are because there are many wild speculations as to who these are uh, today. Uh, but it's important to, to establish what it means to have two witnesses. So the Pharisee said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. We drop down a few verses to verse 18. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So Jesus said, I'm not my witness alone, but I have the Father. So they would understand that there are two that witness this. The prophecy 
To prophecy is not always to tell of future events. In the strictest sense, a prophet is one who delivers God's Word. Ephesians chapter 4, and verses 11-12, through 12, And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. He gave all of those to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. The 1260 days. This is the time that the church will be persecuted, but not destroyed. They will suffer, but they will survive. They will be trampled outside in the court of the Gentiles, but they will be victorious. They will appear to be defeated, and their apparent death will be celebrated, but they will rise. This is the same number from verse 2, the 42 months. 42 times 30 is 1260. Okay, in sackcloth. Sackcloth is associated with mourning and sadness. We've seen it many times in Scripture, but I've chosen these two. Uh, when Jacob hears that Joseph has been, uh, he believes that he's been killed, then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days, mourning for the death of his son. In Esther chapter 4 and verse 1, when Mordecai hears that the, uh, the empire intends on killing the Jews, Mordecai learned that all had been done. Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out in the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. The church will mourn those martyred for the bitter persecution that is happening. Uh, it is going to be a time of a lot of sorrow uh, with the church. Verse 4, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Where do we go to find out what this means? Well, we've already seen it in Scripture. We'll go back to the book of Zechariah, which I noted previously. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand all of gold, with a bowl on top of it, and seven lamps on it, with the seven lips on each of the lamps that are on tops of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl, and the other is on the left. Very similar to what we're seeing in the book of Revelation. And this isn't the same vision, but it, it reminds us of what is being talked about here. We drop down to verses 4 and 6, 4 through 6. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So he explains to Zechariah what this, what this is. We drop down to verses 11 and begin. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my lord. And he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So in the context of, of Zechariah, he explains about who these two anointed ones, they stand by the Lord of the whole earth. As someone who lived in the first century, who had a Jewish background, they would have understood that this is similar to the vision that Zechariah gives. And Zechariah is giving a vision of the kingdom to come, the, the church. Who were the two anointed ones who stood before the Lord in the vision of Zechariah 4? Well, one of them was Zerubbabel of the royal lineage of David in the lineage of Christ. Uh, we find this in the genealogy of, uh, of Jesus in Luke chapter 3 and verse 27. Uh, we read about Zerubbabel in chapter 4 and verse 10. Also, it is Joshua, the high priest. Uh, Haggai, who was current to this time, writes about Joshua, the high priest, and Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah 3.8 identifies Joshua as a high priest. Royalty and high priestly figures there. Uh, 
What do the olive trees do? They perpetually feed the lamps on the lampstand to give light. The two, the two offices that were established by anointing in the Old Testament were kings. We find in 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 1, Saul was anointed. 16 and 13, David was anointed. And the priests, Exodus chapter 30 and verse 30, Moses is given the command that the priests, the high priest and the sons of Aaron were also to be anointed. So those two were anointed, the anointed ones who stand beside. Uh, who are the two witnesses in John's vision? Well, you have to ask that question. And we're able to use Zechariah as a basis. They're the church. In Revelation chapter 1, and verse 5 through 6, and, Jesus, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. Remember this, that he is a ruler of kings on earth present because that's going to come up later in the chapter. To him who loves us and was freed us from the sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He has made us priests. As Christians, we are priests. We are priests. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8. Uh, it says, When he had taken the scroll and the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, he comes down here and he says, They sang a new song. We drop down to verse 10. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What do we have here? We have the priests and we have those who reign. We have royalty. Uh, we have a royal priesthood. Exactly what Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. Later in that chapter, it says, But you are, I've uh, highlighted that word, are, not will be one day, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we begin to understand who those two are there uh, in the vision. Who is God's holy nation today? Well, Peter tells us the church is God's holy nation today. So we drop down to verses 5 through 6. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut up heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Now as terrifying as this seems in verses 5 and 6, this isn't something that is literally going to happen but it's something he's showing the power that they have while they are, and nothing can stop them while they are, uh, while they are witnessing to this. Okay, So we read this. Where do we see these before? Fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. That's power to shut heaven so that no rain falls. Well, go back to Numbers chapter 16 and verse 35. And fire came out of the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. This is Moses. This is happening during. This is the rebellion of Korah. In 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 10, we read, But Elijah answered the captain of fifty, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him with his fifty. He's showing that the strength that the Christians have in that day were as powerful as what they had seen. He's giving them confidence to know that they are going to overcome. In 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, is before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. How long was that going to be? We aren't told in 1 Kings, 
But we're told in James chapter 5, verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days, it did not rain on the earth. They would have understood all of this absolutely perfectly. Exodus seven seventeen. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the God. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The power that they're talking about back in the book of Revelation. The church is presented here as having the power that Moses, under the law, Elijah, the prophets have, all of this. Uh, the ten plagues of Egypt. They're making reference to all this. All this the Israel, Jewish people know from their history. Matthew chapter 17, verse 2 through 3. We know this is the Mount of Transfiguration. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. Isn't that amazing that the very two figures that are being referenced here in the book of Revelation are the exact ones that Peter, James, and who saw? John. The symbolism in Revelation is unmistakable. We drop down to verse 7. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Up to this point, we have in the first six verses the reassurance that they have the power that they will overcome. But now he says when they finish, they're going to finish their testimony. But the beast that ascends out of the bottom's pit is going to make war, overcome them, and kill them. Testimony. The word for testimony here is uh, martyria. Evidence given, judicially or generally, a record, a report, a testimony, or a witness. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, that's exactly what Jesus told the disciples, the apostles at that point. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness from the same root word, as Marturia comes from, Martus, in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the world. And what was that? What's the witness they're, they're doing? They're preaching the gospel. It's just exactly what they're told in Mark 16, 15. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Luke 24, 47, 48. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses. Again, there's that word, Martus, of these things. They are not preaching against Rome. They are preaching the gospel. They are not going to be prohibited. They are going to go on and witness or preach the gospel. Okay, so now here we have, we come to the beast. And the beast is found 39 times in the book of Revelation. And I've listed them there. If you'd like to pause or write those down, you can read them. But they're readily available. 39 times, chapter 11, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. It occurs over and over. Now you understand why it was important to know who the beast is rather than trying to uh, take and throw a, a random dart at the wall and try to pick out who it was in history. Uh, it's, uh, understand, it's already been identified. Daniel showed who it was. John is going to show us who it is in verse 13, chapter 13 because he is going to identify it as that which Daniel already did 500 years before. Uh, some of the attributes of the beast. The beast is evil by virtue that it comes from the abode of evil and makes war on the saints. Chapter 11, verse 7. The beast is given power by the dragon or Satan in chapter 13 and verse 2. Uh, he's identified as Satan. Uh, 
the uh, dragon in chapter 12 and verse 9, the beast has a mortal wound that was healed, and the whole earth follows the beast in chapter 13, verse 3. The whole earth worships the beast, chapter 13, verse 4. The beast is given a mouth and authority for 32 months, chapter 13 and verse 5. The beast has authority over all the earth, chapter 13, verse 7. Now we have another beast rises from the earth in 13.11. This beast makes the earth worship the first beast, chapter 13, verse 12. The second beast performs signs and deceives those who dwell on the earth, chapter 13, verse 14. The second beast makes those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the first beast, chapter 13, verse 14, again, and give breath to the image of the first beast, verse 15 of that chapter. Those who will not worship the image might be slain, verse 15 of that chapter. The second beast will... Uh, the second beast, all to receive the mark on the uh, that uh, is going to require that all to receive a mark on the forehead or their right hand, so as to be able to buy and sell. In verse 17, the number of the first beast is a number of a man, six six six. Chapter 13, verse 18. Love to tell you what that means now, but we're still in chapter 11. So Revelation chapter 9, he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit. Remember, this is where the beast came from. Uh, the dragon came from there, but also the, uh, the beast comes from there. Uh, from the, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. Uh, is this a literal? No, remember, we are in a, a book that is figuratively speaking and telling us all. The bottomless pit is not a literal place, but a representation of where evil abides. Darkness, a bottomless pit. Pit in the Old Testament was associated with death and all things dead, but this pit is bottomless. You'll oftentimes, uh, well, we have some examples here in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 15, but you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. Psalm 88, 6 tells us, you have put me in the depths of the pit in the regions of dark and deep. Job 33, verse 28, he has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit and my life shall look upon the light. It's a place of the dead, but this because it's a bottomless pit, is even worse than those. Verse 8, And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which, is spiritually, is, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. We ask ourselves, what is represented by the dead bodies lying in the streets? Why aren't they buried? What is represented spiritually by Sodom and Egypt? And what city crucified our Lord? Ask ourselves those questions. And while we may think the answers are easy, remember, we're talking symbolically. The dead bodies represent and are symbolical of the martyred saints. The martyrdom continues under the beast. Revelation 6, 9 and 10, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So this... This martyrdom of the saints continues on and on. And they want to know, what are you going to do about it? And God is answering that. Symbolically means from the uh, pneuma takitos, takios, uh, pardon my Greek, figuratively. Uh, it, what it means is figuratively. You recognize the uh, part of the words in there. And Sodom, figuratively, means that which is immoral. Sodom will always be equated with sin and immoral living. Go back and read the book of Genesis. Egypt represents oppression and captivity. Where, was our, where also our Lord was crucified? Well, think figuratively. Who crucified our Lord? It wasn't the Jews. 
it was the Romans. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Who were these lawless men? They were the Romans. Acts chapter 3 and verse 13, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. Pilate, the governor, when he decided to release him. Matthew chapter 27, verse 31, uh, because we may think that this spiritually and symbolic is talking about Jerusalem, but remember, it's symbolic of uh, where he was crucified. Uh, and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his clothes and led him away to be crucify him. Who did that? Roman soldiers. Mark 10, 33-34. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Over and over we see it was the Romans who crucified. Now, we know that the Jews were responsible because they rejected but it says, uh, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. Well, they had a law, but they did not have the authority to do it. Only the Romans had the authority to do this. Um, they cried out, Away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? The priests answered, I think some of the faithful words, we have no king but Caesar. John 19, 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them. Over and over we read, it was the Romans who crucified. So the, the uh, symbolically the city where Jesus was crucified, symbolically was Rome, was the city that uh, were the people that crucified him. Revelation 11, 9 through 10, then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Who were those two prophets? All the way back, they were the two that were uh, the lampstands. Who are the people's tribes, tongues, and nations? Why are the dead bodies in the streets three and a half days? Well, they prophesied for 1,260 days, but they laid in the street three and a half days. Relatively short time compared to the amount of time that they were. They're trying to show that, yes, these things you're going to be able to do to prophesy, to preach the gospel, but when they think they have killed you, it's going to be a very short time. But, now after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on all those who saw them. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 37, 1 through 5. And we're going to be wrapping up this class uh, real quick with this verse. The hand of the Lord was upon me, upon Ezekiel as he watches us. And he brought me out into the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me among, around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. Now, while this, many people think that this verse is talking about the resurrection, this is actually talking about uh, the Jews as they were coming back. They were actually going to come back to 
the land of Judah. Remember, Ezekiel is over in Babylon already on the river Chebar. Uh, but he's prophesying about the time when they will rise up and come back. But this is very indicative of uh, they shall rise up. I will uh, cause breath to enter you and you shall live. Who does this? God will allow them to be raised back up. And this is where we're going to end. We're going to end in uh, verse uh, 12, and this will be a good place to pick up next week. And we'll be ready to begin that. I hope this has been a profitable study for you. I'm glad that you were able to join it, and I hope that it has been a very profitable study uh, to, to really be able to understand that the best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible itself. Let the Bible speak for itself, and we learn much more than that. Uh, so as we close, let's go to God in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the time that we have here together. We thank you that we've been able to study a portion of your word. We pray that it has been profitable for us, that we realize that you are in charge of all things. And though we may endure persecution for uh, a short period of time, that you are with us and that you will help us, regardless of what happens, even to the point of death. We know that you are protecting us for eternity. We pray that your gospel might go out and we're making every effort that we can to make sure that this happens. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.